had this math teacher from Avonworth. She said something profound that's really stuck with me the past couple of days. It's only failure if you stop. And, you know, that some folks might think that sounds pithy, but I really believe that. I believe in this notion of purposeful risk taking. And you, if you just, if you give up, if you stop, that's when you fail. But if you try something and it doesn't work, that's not failure, right? That's a great opportunity to learn. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're talking with Andrew Byros, coach at the New Tech Network and advocate for high-quality project-based learning. Andrew works with schools that are in their first or second year in being a New Tech Network school. He's taught in Philadelphia, California, and worked with teachers across the country. Getting Smart team member Emily Liebtag had a chance to chat with Andrew recently for our podcast, so let's listen in. Good morning. This is Emily, and today we are talking with Andrew Byros. He works with the New Tech Network and has a rich background in history in schools across the U.S. Andrew, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Well, first, thanks, Emily, for for having me. I'm excited to chat with you and hopefully learn from you during this conversation. So, yeah, I'm Andrew, Andrew Byros. My official job title is School Development Coach with New Tech Network. And New Tech is, so in all honesty, I had no idea what New Tech was before I started working with them. Uh, so if your listeners aren't really sure, then they'd be in the same category I was. New Tech is a bit of the third rail in the education space, right? We're not charter schools. We're not traditional public schools. But we are a network that partners with all types of schools across the country and now internationally to really help school, school leaders, teachers develop the types of culture and system and best practices that will meet their students' needs. And this is all made possible by way of project-based learning and uh, really authentic deeper learning practices. And what were you doing before New Tech? (laughs) Before, so before I joined New Tech, uh, I had, so I'm originally from the East Coast. I'm from, from Philadelphia, went to school there, worked there. We'll surely want to talk about Philly, but uh, most recently I was living in San Jose and was brought out here to help design and launch a public charter school serving students, uh, predominantly first generation Vietnamese and Latino students in East San Jose. working with Alpha Public Schools. So Alpha had two middle schools, and they were ready to design and launch their first high school. And so I worked with them for a little over a year to uh, implement year one. And, oh, my gosh, was it a fantastic learning experience. And that's, you know, that's when you and I first met. That's right. And seeing mm-hmm. you on the ground and kind of working in that school building, it was modular units, but mm-hmm. to the to the naked eye, you would think, oh, goodness, what's going on here? But then when you walked in, man, those classrooms were just rich, rich, rich with great yeah. discussion, great learning. The state, we had this awesome station rotation model that we reference a lot, and so it was great to meet you there, and great that you're also at, at New Tech now. So let's start right in with why project-based learning. One of the reasons I asked you to be on the podcast today was because you do have this really nice background in a lot of different spaces working with projects. So why should we care about project-based learning? 
why project-based learning? So a few a few reasons, right? I think the 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 most important reason is so my background is working with uh, communities, families, and students from who have been traditionally disenfranchised from their education. Uh, so that means high needs communities in West Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, and East San Jose. And you know I really believe that the first question that any teacher or principal should ask him or herself is, who are my students? Where do they come from? Uh, how do I meet their needs? And then, of course, who am I? Where do I come from? And how do I fit into my students' lives? And to answer your question, why project-based learning, right? If a student is you know, disconnected from his or her education, if they've traditionally been told to come in and sit down and shut up and maybe sit a certain way, uh, and take notes and then regurgitate that information back on a test, uh, that, you know, real plainly, that stinks. And PDL, whether it's PDL or design thinking, uh, I really believe that when you give students purpose for their learning, uh, it will, it really ignites that, that key, you know, ignites the flame of learning, that interest, that inquiry uh, to ask questions, to delve deeper. And if there isn't a purpose or if there isn't something tying to students to what you're asking them to work on, then why should they care? And so why PBL? Because really good PBL does just that. It gives students purpose for their learning. I'd argue that I don't do things in my daily work that don't have purpose anymore. <laughs> we know that many educators are hoping to shift their practices to include more PBL. We also know there's a movement to focus more on deeper learning outcomes rather than test scores and traditional measures. Andrew works with many of these educators, so listen as he shares more about what he has seen and how he believes shifting the culture of teacher learning is key. What were your experiences like very, at the very beginning doing projects in Philadelphia? When did you start to learn about this idea of project-based learning? Oh my gosh. So, okay, I'm going to answer, I want to answer your question with a question for you because this is something that I've been kicking around a lot. Uh, and then I can, you know, believe me, I have no, uh, no short breath in talking about myself. So what, if you could give, think, of, think about all of the teachers in the United States, right? There's a little over 3 million teachers right now across schools in the country. I'm curious, based on your experience, what percentage of those teachers do you believe have the mindset to either they're already implementing deeper learning practices and PBL or design thinking or giving students purpose with their work, or what percent of teachers have the mindset to be able to shift their practices to begin adopting, you know, those, those certain teaching methods? Uh, yeah. What percentage do you think? I I would like to say 100% potentially could have the mindset to do this type of work and do want deeper learning outcomes for all their students. The mm -hmm. unfortunate part and the percentage that I think is actually re more reflective of the current status is not near 100%, where we have a lot of teachers that feel stifled or are still seeking demonstration of high test scores or just focus on accountability, accountability, accountability. 
But in mm-hmm. a perfect world, I really do think all teachers probably potentially could have that mindset and, and chase after deeper learning outcomes. I, I want to be with you at 100%. So before, before I even got into education, I went, so I was a community organizer in West Philadelphia when I was an undergrad going to school. And uh, that's what really, you know, got me excited about working with students and working, just working in communities. And I went and got a, an advanced degree in public policy and wrote a dissertation about uh, the Pennsylvania Teachers Union and really the views of teachers in the classroom uh, versus the views of their uh, the folks running the interest group and tried it. So I was able to, I got to interview a lot of teachers. It was really great and very formative for me and ultimately is the reason that I went into the classroom. Uh, and in interviewing teachers and talking with them and learning about them, I, you know, really began, you know, again, to form this uh, deep respect and admiration for the role of a classroom teacher and really began to believe that, yeah, these are folks who, you know, and still do believe this, these are folks who got into the profession not to get rich, right, and not to catch up on mm-hmm. sleep, uh, but because <laughs> they believed in something uh, greater than themselves. And, you know, as, as I've gone into, was a classroom teacher, was a school administrator, and now in the work that I do now, I really believe that the, the teachers are the lifeblood of a school, and mm-hmm. the, the teachers need to, the staff needs to really uh, own a culture of learning for themselves, or else why would we expect that of students? Absolutely. We were just talking with a leader who said that his biggest recommendation for other leaders is to continue to learn and get a staff of learners. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Andrew then talks about how this work to change is hard and takes time. He believes that teamwork and taking risks are key to that process. So listen as he shares more. Education is different from every other sector because everyone has a very visceral experience with the school system. And I like to, you know, I like to say, if you went to your dentist, right, let's say you go to your dentist and you're sitting there, you got your mouth open, they got the light in your eye, and your dentist says, hey, so there's this uh, new practice of filling cavities. Uh, You know, it's research-based and really it will, you'll get better results. Your teeth will feel better in the long run and they'll, you know, they'll produce better. How about we try this? You know, no one's going to be like, ah, 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 you know what? I've been brushing my teeth for a while. Just keep doing it the way that I'm used to. That would, that would seem crazy, right? But mm-hmm. unfortunately, in education, that's exactly what happens. It's the, well, you know, sitting in rows and taking tests was good for me. Or like taking AP tests or AP classes was good for me. So it must be good for these kids, which is just, it's frustrating to tell you the truth having the skills to collaborate and work within a team. I mean, I remember my undergrad experience. It was, it was a lot of that. And uh, I was fortunate because I had to have, you know, received that type of high school experience. But if students, you know, particularly if, if we just focus on the individual and not how we can uh, really coach students to work together and to collaborate, then they're not going to have the skills they need not only to succeed in college, but I don't know about you, but uh, in my professional life, I have to work with a lot of folks, and that's, that's just the nature of the game. And I'm all day, every day, all day, every day, right? So let's give students practice 
doing just that in high school, middle school, and elementary school. So that leads me to my next question. You work with a lot of schools that are just getting started and making some of these shifts. Tell us about mm-hmm. that work. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I'm fortunate that I work with first-year schools primarily. So these are schools that have decided to join the network. Uh, and it's a little different in that they keep their identity, you know, what makes uh, you know, what makes First State Military Academy special in Delaware is different than what makes Vintage High School in Northern California different uh, or special in and of itself. And so my work is really focuses a lot around coaching principles about what it means to develop a culture where adult learning takes center stage. Uh, and then also working with teachers when it's smaller schools that I'm working with, working with teachers about uh, how to take some of the best practices that they're used to and fold it into, you know, a uh, a framework that, like I said earlier, will give students purpose for their work. Um, so it's it's really exciting. You're providing 360 support, which I think is what a lot of people need, not just to come in mm-hmm. and fix or not and fix is the wrong word to help with one practice. It's about changing a culture and an ecosystem of learning within a school. It's a lot of answering questions with more questions and really prodding folks and nudging folks to to think about how how might I need to change or how might I you know, continue to learn myself? And then where are there opportunities for me to try this out, for me to implement these best practices? And if it doesn't work, if I fail completely, that's okay, right? Let's come back. Let's learn from this uh, this experience, and let's keep moving forward. I had this math teacher from Avonworth. She said something profound. It's really stuck with me the past couple of days. It's only failure if you stop. And, you know, that some folks might think that sounds pithy, but I really believe that. I believe in this notion of purposeful risk-taking. And you, if you just, if you give up, if you stop, that's when you fail. But if you try something and it doesn't work, that's not failure, right? That's a great opportunity to learn. It's something, a mindset that we want to instill. I personally, you know, New Tech as well, wants to instill in students, but it also has to be fostered with adults. That's not pithy. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't me. It was Julie, Julie teaches math, Avonworth, Avonworth Middle School. Give it to her. Julie, we're coming for you. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where today we're talking with Andrew Byros, who's worked in schools across the country to help them infuse PBL practices and coach teachers. If you're enjoying this podcast, listen to Season 2, Episode 2, called Ed Leaders on Global High Quality PBL, where we speak with Brandon Wiley and Roddy Boonchoy as part of the High Quality Project-Based Learning Project. You can also visit hqpbl.org for more. Now back to this podcast. We join Emily and Andrew again as they discuss how he works with teachers to understand how the process of PBL, which includes failure, is just as important as the products. Would you argue that failure, in this sense, mm-hmm. is a part of really high-quality PBL? Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. And what else would you think is a part of high-quality PBL? I'm hearing themes of purpose. Mm-hmm. understanding it's a process. What else would you say is a part of high-quality project-based learning? Oh, man, you use the magic, the, the second magic P word, which is the process. This notion of process over results, 
right? Especially for those first and second year schools. What I really, what I value about a network like New Tech is that we have certain processes and protocols that, you know, have been tested and work with incredible fidelity, right? We have schools across the country, 200 schools in the network, a uh, few schools internationally that are using a process that we know will get to fantastic results, right? Great student achievement, college and career ready, kids, you know, creating really awesome, authentic projects, owning their learning. But that's not going to happen in your first year. It's probably not going to happen in your second year. And what is important, again, for, for the adults is to follow that process, to trust that process, and to value the process over the results. Uh, because if you, if you try to pick and choose, right, ah, you know what, maybe I'm not going to have a driving question. Or, mm, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to have a problem statement. Or we'll just have a mini project, but really I'm going to have them take a test because I need to know if they uh, know all the elements of the Peloponnesian War. That's what's important, right? If you, if you pick and choose, you don't follow the process, then you're not going to get the results that you want. Uh, but that's really difficult, right? Especially in, you know, the national environment of standardized tests of how teachers are evaluated, of how schools are evaluated, uh, depending on a school context, right? It's very difficult, or it takes a special leader, either a superintendent or a principal, to create an environment where teachers feel safe and feel there's a level of trust so that they can focus on the process, uh, really nail certain moves or protocols uh, that will you know, you'll start to get quick wins. You'll start to see little elements of success, but it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint uh, because ultimately, when I'm saying like process, 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 all of that involves the adults, the teachers learning and iterating on what's working, what's not working, how can we adjust this to fit the needs of my students. And understanding that the same processes they go through in that journey students will also be doing or going through as they are working on projects. I have a school in Point Arena, California, you know, right up the coast in Mendocino County. And this is a first-year school. Uh, and Dr. Melody Hood, she teaches English. I was, so I'm, I'm taking no credit for this, right? Because I, I surely did not coach her to do this. She took the framework that New Tech provides teachers for how to design a project. And she gave that to her students for them to create, uh, so for the project, they were uh, going to petition the PTA to allow students to, you know, go eat off campus. Can't think of anything, you know, more authentic for teenagers. But Melody gave the students this framework that we provide educators. And she said, hey, like, here you go, guys. Like, you need to create your initiative. You need to create your, your proposal. And here are a bunch of processes and protocols for you to do that. And I was, I was floored. Like, I, I was loving it. Uh, because, you know, it speaks to just that point that, uh, these are, these are tools that will help with adults in their, you know, ultimate aim of developing neat projects for kids, but they're also tools and processes that students can surely use in order to accomplish the goals that they have in class. 
and students own it. They, they rise to every occasion, every time. Are you wondering about preparing teachers for this type of work? Andrew shares his own preparation for this type of teaching and learning, and how he tries to provide other teachers with more of these types of experiences. So we already talked a little bit about uh, the teacher education programs, like whether or just how, how someone comes to the teaching profession. I really believe that needs to change, and I, I was fortunate enough to I had a really wonderful you know, experience uh, learning how to be a classroom teacher. And I wish that my experience mirrored or the experiences because, you know, I was, I was working at a school a couple weeks ago and the school, First State Military Academy in Delaware, and one of their teachers, after leading a day of learning, kind of looked at me quizzically and he goes, do you know any teacher education programs that teach like your teaching? Uh, and I kind of think for a moment and say, well, I know one, because I'm thinking of the one that I was fortunate enough to attend. And this teacher makes the remark that, yeah, I wish that, I wish I would have been trained and would have learned about teaching this way, meaning project-based learning, first. Uh, and he says, because it would have been a lot easier. And so I really believe that we need to rethink how we train teachers, uh, the amount of time that we afford teachers to learn, right, not just Here's three weeks of how to get kids to sit up straight. All right, go be a teacher. I think that's misses the mark completely. And, you know, we have to rethink, and this will take us down a rabbit hole for sure, we have to rethink the incentives that one has to go into the teaching profession. And that means, you know, both what incentivizes them on a personal level and, you know, monetarily and fiscally and what, what are they getting, but also what are the types of, scenarios and situations and school contexts that a person is going to be working in. So, for instance, if I am a third-year teacher, so right now my practice is, you know, it's, it's getting refined, do I want to go work in a school where students are underserved with regard to social and emotional learning or have really deep uh, trauma, but there's no counselor at that school, or there's not even, you know, someone for students to talk to, right? Do I want to go work in that context? Probably not. And that, I think we really need to consider that uh, with regard to teacher education programs, teacher learning, and why someone would become a teacher. I'm going to go back to what you started with about preparing teachers and how we get them to have more of these experiences up front. We wrote in a paper, Preparing Teachers for a Project-Based World, that at the core, as we rethink how we want teacher preparation, it would look really different. If we were to take a school, maybe some that New Tech work with, you know, the preparation to get that type of teaching and learning would include more online experiences for teachers would include more project-based experiences for teachers <laughs> would look mm. more competency-based than it would look you get a grade at the end of a course and you can say that you mastered teaching literacy because that's just huh. not the case <laughs> you know yeah. right it's just not yeah. that's not how it works what i am most grateful for when i was learning and i'm you know i'm still learning about how to be a good educator a great educator uh an experience that I'm grateful for is that during my teacher education program, so I was I was taking classes at night, I was teaching during the day at a neighborhood public high school, along with a mentor teacher, but I also had a coach, Sandy, 
I've, and Sandy was a, herself was an educator of 25 years. This was a volunteer role for her. And Sandy would come into my classroom and sit in the back and take ethnographic notes. And she would write down what she was hearing from students, from me, what she was perceiving. She would ask students a few questions. And then she and I would sit down and debrief. She was, actually, she would type up all of her notes. She handwrote them and then typed them up, which I'm sure took more time than she needed to take. Uh, and then she and I would debrief what she saw. And it wasn't a, I saw this, Andrew, I'm telling you what to do, but very Socratic, very, you know, trying to, you know, constructivist, trying to get me to, to come to my own understanding of what had happened in class. And it was a very, it was, it was amazing, right? That's, that's how I grew because I had an outside set of eyes sharing with me what was happening that I might not have been seeing or hearing or even, you know, how I wasn't uh, aware of how I was coming across or the moves that I was making. And I learned more during those conversations with Sandy, debriefing, uh, than I think I think any other experience that I've had, that I had during my teacher education program. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks so much to Andrew for speaking with us today, to Emily Liebtag for producing, and to Troy Lund for mixing support. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes, and while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat, signing off.